Any person who is diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is welcome to call the HCMA. Whether you're a paid member or not is not relevant at this point. Of course, we want everybody to be a paid member and we have sponsorships and all kinds of stuff. But we just want to help that patient find their space where they are in the journey and understand what resources are there next for them. is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Salberg, founder and CEO of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, or HCMA. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, tell us about HCMA. HCMA serves patients with the genetic heart disease, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We were founded in 1996. And we provide education, support, and advocacy to patients, families, and the medical community related to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, while fostering research into innovative therapies, and ultimately, hopefully, someday a cure. So Lisa, what does it mean to have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? What is it? What are the symptoms? What does it do to you? So it's not a great diagnosis to receive. Hmm. It is a genetic heart muscle disorder that causes the heart to become stiff and thick. It is the leading cause of sudden cardiac arrest in the young, meaning under 40, and the leading cause of sudden cardiac arrest in young athletes. So we get the headline when a student athlete has collapsed. We are seeing more survivals from those cardiac arrests due to prompt CPR and AED utilization, but it's really not a great way to get diagnosed is to try to die first, right? So we're trying to get to these families early, get them the treatment that they need. And that could be anything from some medication to just surveillance, to implantable defibrillators, to some open heart surgery procedures, We have a brand new class of medication now available, and ultimately 5% will go to heart transplantation. Lisa, how would one know that one has this? So there's a couple of ways to know if you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Number one, if you have a family history of anybody having HCM, you, if you are in that genetic lineage, should be screened for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. If you are having symptoms that seem a little unusual and you can't exactly pinpoint them because they change a lot, Hmm. you may have been told you have a heart murmur. Now, don't panic just because you have a heart murmur does not mean you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. A lot of people have abnormal sounding hearts. But if you have 
mitral valve prolapse diagnosis, athletically induced asthma, shortness of breath with exercise. If you feel anxious at times, but it doesn't seem to have a correlation with an event, like I don't like driving over bridges. So my heart races when I go over a bridge. But if I was sitting at my desk and my heart started racing out of nowhere, there's no trigger. So if you have these odd symptoms, and sometimes maybe you feel a little lightheaded, or maybe you feel a little dizzy, or you're just really tired and you can't figure out why, talk to your doctor about HCM. It is common. One in 250 people have it, regardless of your ethnicity or geographic location. And Lisa, will my doctor know about HCM? Will your doctor know about HCM? That's a really good question. And that's something that we're working on right now through one of our programs called HCM Academy, which is professional education. Not enough doctors know about us. Not enough cardiologists really know about us. Even though we are a heart disease, we're the thing that they don't think about very often because we're not common. So you've heard the expression when you hear hooves, it's not always horses, sometimes it's zebras. Right. I'm a zebra. So we're there. We're in plain sight. We're common. Up to a million people in America can be diagnosed with HCM right now. Through imaging, genetics, and physical, we can find that many. But unfortunately, only 15% of those who carry a diagnosis have been identified so far. So I have to go find the other 85%. I'm going to be busy. Wow. Well, before we talk about all the things that you're doing to identify that other 85%, Lisa, let's talk about your journey. How did you get to found this organization and now you're CEO? Uh, story. It's always a good story. Always a good story. But it's a sad story. Ugh. And I think a lot of nonprofits start with a pain, with a loss, with grief. And it's whether or not you can take that pain and grief and turn it into something positive, productive. So I was diagnosed with HCM when I was only 12 years old. I had always known I had this weird family history. My grandfather died at 43. My uncle was diagnosed in his early 20s. My sister was diagnosed as a child. She was 10 years older than me. And when I was 12, they said, yes, you too. And a heart murmur was detected in a school physical, which led me to a cardiologist. And things were quiet for a while after that, really. For about a decade, I had symptoms. I would get chest pain. I would pass out. I would nearly pass out. My heart would race as a teenager. And I thought this was all normal. So I'd be sitting in biology class and there would be a lesson and I stopped paying attention halfway through because my heart was racing and my head was dizzy and I didn't want anybody to know. So that was that was adolescence and childhood with HCM. When I was um, the ripe old age of 21, I got married at 21. I got married young. And three weeks after my wedding, I had a stroke. Oh my God. Secondary to endocarditis, a bacterial infection in my heart. So I lost vision in part of my left eye and I have some weakness down my left side that's still with me 33 years later. But that HCM started to become more real. Later that same summer, summer of 1990, my uncle passed away from sudden cardiac arrest. He wasn't yet 50. He was like 47, 48. And five years to the day from my stroke, my sister was pronounced dead after suffering a cardiac arrest five days earlier and staying in a coma for the last five days of her life. Oh. 
And my sister then became an organ donor at the ripe old age of 36. I started to research what happened. Why did my sister die? Why did my uncle die? What was I next? I was eight months pregnant. My sister had two children that she asked me to keep an eye on if anything ever happened to her. So I kept my promise. I was working as a human resource manager at the time. I did health plan administration as part of my role. And I really liked health insurance. I loved the access questions. I I was kind of a health insurance geek. So much so that in my old job, I convinced them to ditch the traditional insurance and go self-insured because I thought I could manage it better. And I beat the market 17 out of 18 years. Nice. And provided great healthcare coverage to our staff. So that was great. So I come from that background of organize and deploy and find the right people for the right job and organizationally get things done. So I decided that there was this new thing called the internet. You had to do the www dot thing and had to explain to people how to use it because it was 1995. Right. So I decided I would start a website to help people who had the same diagnosis as I did because I was alone. My support was my sister. She was now deceased. So there are other diseases with associations and nonprofits kind of devoted to those diseases, whether it's diabetes or whatever it is. So there was no organization for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There was none. I did attempt to reach out to larger organizations, and I did not find the type of resources that I needed. Ah. I needed to know what to do to keep myself healthy and alive. At the core, my entire mission is started in patient safety. My sister was harmed by a physician who gave her misinformation. She didn't die from the disease. She died from the mismanagement of the disease. Mm. She could have lived. So I wanted to figure out why, what happened there. And I called the American Heart Association. Right. We are now very good friends and we work together. Took a while, but I called them and I said, hey, like my sister died of this condition. I need more information. And they said, ask your doctor. I'm like, yeah, my doctor just killed my sister. He's not really a trusted source at this moment. And he's not really helpful. He's not helpful. And I tried to get some help. And then I reached out to this brand new internet thing. And somebody gave me a name of a woman in the United Kingdom. Her name was Carolyn Biro, And she had an organization focused on cardiomyopathy and HCM specifically. So there's four different kinds of cardiomyopathies. HCM is one. So I reached out to her and she became my mentor. I didn't expect it. I didn't see it coming. And she did. She's an American who moved to the UK. And she said, I've been waiting for somebody like you. I'm like, what do you mean waiting for me? You're going to start the group. She actually told me I was going Ah. to do it. And I went, oh, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to do. I didn't give it a lot of thought, which sounds a little unusual, but I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll start this thing. It'll just be a website. And as they say, those are famous last words. And when was this, Lisa? 1996. The fall of 95 leading to the beginning of 96. I filed for my 501c3 in February of 96. So it's been a long road. I've been at this a while. So tell us where you are today as an organization. Oh, we've come a long way, baby. But the first 2018 years was kind of small. Me and one or two part-timers, little office, little structure. And then things grew. Pharma got interested in us. There's now targeted therapies for HCM. So that makes us financially interesting to different pharma companies, which we were never before. We were always used the generic drug off-label. But once 
pharma saw us and said, we can do something here. Things started to grow. And it's a tricky line to balance between their needs and our needs, but there are areas of synergy and partnership is critical because that's what drives us forward. Today, we are an organization with 10 on staff, three contractors. I've got a board that's, uh, I guess we got 12 on the board right now. I have five different committees functioning. Each committee has between five and 10 individuals as standing members. We have working groups within those committees. And I have several hundred volunteers out there sharing their story. We have a new ambassador program that we're showing the faces of HCM. We don't look ill. We don't look like we have heart disease. So we have to talk about what you can't see. So we've grown exponentially. So Lisa, you've had this organization for a couple decades. Where are you in the journey? Because you founded the organization, you run the organization, but you're also a patient. Well, I guess you can say I was a patient. Okay. I'm one of the rare 5% with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that move on to heart transplantation. So things were organizationally chugging along, but I was starting to struggle back in 2016. And I couldn't figure out why the workaholic in me was taking time off and wanted to go home at four o'clock in the afternoon, not eight. Turned out that my heart had pretty much given up. And I had a heart transplant in February of 2017. And I got my workaholic back very quickly. I worked from my ICU bed. Wow. Yeah, that was probably a little overdone. Probably not a good idea, but... (laughs) Not a great idea, but one of my community members reached out to the press and said, she's got an interesting story. So while on morphine post-heart transplant, I did an interview. We'll put a link in the show notes to the interview. You can put a link. It's pretty good, actually. I I said, you know, I am on drugs for this. I need to see it before it goes out. And I only had like one area that I'm like, I have no idea what I was talking about there, but we edited that. (laughs) It was okay. And it actually went mini viral, not because of the story, but because of the photo that went with it. Three days post-transplant, my heart was handed back to me in a plastic bag so it could get shipped off so that I could keep it and plastinize it as a teaching tool to show other people what HCM looks like. Oh. So having a picture of a a woman holding her heart three days after her transplant kind of got some people interested, so they started following that story. Lisa, what does a heart with HCM look like? Great question. So the walls of the heart are too thick in the left ventricle. So what ends up happening is they get thick, not equally, not concentrically. So some walls may be thicker than others, but your cavity shrinks. So you don't have as much room for blood. So you have this thick heart that doesn't have a lot of room. And then on top of it, the heart starts to get stiff. So our systolic, our squeeze is great, but our relaxation is terrible. And the heart just constantly stays engaged. There are some amazing therapies coming now, new drugs called myosin inhibitors, which can help the heart relax way down deep in the cardiac sarcomere where your heart actually starts to beat from. And now we're even working on genetic therapies coming for HCM. So for those few who we can identify the genes and we can deliver a therapy, there might be something curative. I wouldn't quite call it a cure yet, but it may lead to a more normalized heart. So at this point, no cure for HCM, but a lot of treatment options? So many treatment options. We've had to design our patient support systems around the concept that no two patients are the same, which makes our work 
really complicated and very individualized. Well, you've got something really interesting that you offer, which is what you call an intake and navigation call. And this is a pretty central service that you provide to all HCM patients. So tell us about this. Absolutely. So any person who is diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is welcome to call the HCMA. Whether you're a paid member or not is not relevant at this point. Of course, we want everybody to be a paid member and we have sponsorships and all kinds of stuff, but we just want to help that patient find their space where they are in the journey and understand what resources are there next for them. And no two people come to us from the same point of view. Somebody may have just been diagnosed and they're just absolutely confused. Somebody may be in this for five or 10 years, but things are shifting. Somebody may be moving across country. Somebody has a lot of arrhythmias. Somebody has a lot of heart failure problems. It's very, very individualized because the HCM heart causes both electrical abnormalities that can cause things like sudden death and structural abnormalities that can cause heart failure. So to know what we're dealing with and where we are in each one of those paths, we do the intake call and the patients answer a whole bunch of questions, provide whatever medical information that they want. And then we set up a navigation call. And to this day, I have done every navigation call the organization has ever held. Wait, 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 hang on. You take every call by yourself with a doctor, with an assistant? We're not doctors, we're not nurses, and we don't play them on TV. And that's pretty much the way I start every call. Okay. We are there to help the patient navigate what options are available and to understand terminology that some professionals will sometimes throw out quite innocently, but people aren't getting the concept. So if you were diagnosed with HCM tomorrow, my intake coordinators would ask you a bunch of questions. Then we'd set up a calendar appointment for you and I to talk. And you might say, I'm really interested in understanding how genetics impacts my family. And I can look through the family tree and say, well, given the fact that you were adopted, and I'm just throwing out some scenarios, it's going to be really hard to track what this gene means in your family. And in other cases, I may say, yeah, look at grandpa had a cardiac arrest or some cardiac event at 40, but then dies at 50. But then you thought it was because of something else. So that's suspicious. Mm. So you want to talk to your doctor about grandpa's death because the family myth may not be the family truth, because you just may not have the information because there was no autopsy done or whatever. So we have to help each person figure out where they are in a strand of a lot of different options available. And we help them focus on different areas. We teach them how to journal their symptoms, how to keep track of all of their medical records, how to understand when different options may become available for them. Some people need open heart surgery. Some people need implantable devices. Some people need a heart transplant. Some people just need to monitor. So helping people figure out which path they're on is important. And I've slightly figured out how to lighten my individual load, and that's with technology. So now after you get your intake call, you get an email with something called HCM Nest, which says, hey, based on your intake information, you never had this test and this test. This is what they're used for. This is why they're important. And here's how to talk to your doctor about these tests. So we're handing them all the tools to make the most meaningful contribution to their doctor's appointment. So they're sharing the key information that the doctor needs to know and understand, and then they can get a good response back. Wow. And this keeps patients safer. And we've developed not only that part of it, but we have the medical institutions as well. We have 50 centers of excellence for the care of HCM. 
Let's get back to the patient intake call. Who's funding this? Are they paying for this? They don't have to. Okay. We ask for a membership. It's cheap. They get a lot for their membership. They get a copy of a book that I've written that was published by Wiley. So it's like a real published book. They get a journal. They get a lot of other supportive information in the mail. And they get 45 minutes of my time. Wow. It's a lot. That's for a paid membership. If they're not paying, they get 15 minutes. We try to give them as much as we have to. But then I have scholarships. People will pay for scholarship memberships. We do get industry funding to subsidize. We get general donations and grants, which help pay for all of this work. I have two intake coordinators. One's full-time, one's part-time. One works California hours, one Jersey. That's part of the process. And then there's follow-up after the call. If they have additional questions, they can call anytime that they want. But this is the way that we help patients become their own advocates. I'm here to pass on knowledge. And it's very specific knowledge of a very specific disease. And the more I can impart on the individual who has HCM, here are some action items. They're going to make different decisions than I might make for myself. And that's fine. As long as I understand here are all the options and here's where I can go to get more information. That's the key. And you're speaking as someone who had HCM, who has navigated the system and who has really spent decades learning about HCM and the options and the treatments and how insurance works and all that. So you're this non-medical guide to the system. Kind of, yeah. In addition to that, we've got the medical professionals working with us. We're not working against them. We're not trying to push them to do things. We know who the key opinion leaders are, not only in the country, but in the world. And I do work internationally. That's kind of where our growth is going now is to help other advocacy organizations build worldwide. We're doing some work with a group in Sweden, with a group in Australia, with people in Italy and Amsterdam. So we want to help patients coordinate and advocate for themselves. And each healthcare system has different challenges. I was recently at the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland in May. And I'm like, okay, how are we going to get to like Africa? How am I going to help African HCM patients? And I realized that the infrastructure is so far behind that they have so much work to do. And then last week, I just met a new partner who has outreach in Ghana. Ah. I feel like my whole life is connect the dots. So, oh, I want to be able to help African HCM patients, but they don't have basic care. But these people are helping build basic care. So you just have to constantly look for connections. So how do the centers of excellence tie into this? Because you've just created your 50th center of excellence. So tell us about that. So the first about 14 I call legacy programs. They're people that I trusted and started working with back in the 90s and keep working with to this day. Then in about 2005, six, four, five, six, there were some modern HCM programs, people wanting to actually develop care models just for HCM. And it's a multidisciplinary approach. You need imaging cardiologists. You need interventional cardiologists. You need cardiac surgeons. You need electrophysiologists. You need geneticists. You need maternal fetal health. You need pediatric and adult. You need transplant. So there's all of these different elements that you could have to invoke at any different time in your HCM life. Having 
been a patient, experienced the communication from a community cardiologist versus a well-rounded center where I didn't have to trust one person to know the whole thing. Ah. We have all these partners because there are many aspects to the HCM heart, the structural, and then what medication is going to do to that heart, what structurally we have to do to the heart, what the electrical system is to the heart. So there's all these different features. When you go to a center, you have a team approach. You'll have your point person as your doctor, but that person can go back to the rest of his team and go, okay, look, here's a family with five generations that we can trace HCM in. We've got two transplants, a stroke death from atrial fibrillation complications, and two people who are asymptomatic. What do we do with them? So they can sit together as a team and evaluate the genetics and the physiology and the electrophysiology of that heart, and they can provide the best care for that patient. Probably my most proud moment, well, one of them, I've got a few. I started doing this as the patient who said, this is what works for me, and hearing from other patients, yes, this is what works for me too. Right. And working with the institutions to develop this, back in 2020, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association updated their HCM guidelines. Ah. And what do you think they suggest as the optimal care model for those with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? The thing that the patient created, HCMA recognized centers of excellence. Wow. So took a while to prove a point, but the guidelines kind of validated what we thought was the right way to go. And when you look at the outcomes from a patient who gets a therapy delivered in the center of excellence versus community, you can't compare. One in eight surgeries done in a low volume center ends in disaster. And 99% of those who have surgery in an HCMA recognized center of excellence with high volume surgery survive and thrive. So Lisa, where are these centers? Are they all over the country? Are they, where are they? All over the country. The Northeast is very well populated. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York have multiple programs. We've got Florida, Georgia, North South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, California, Utah, Colorado, Minnesota, Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Oregon. We're all over. And so, Lisa, if I call for my intake call and my navigation call, you'll tell me about the closest center to me so that hopefully I can get really personalized, very trained help and care. Two things will happen. You can find the centers at any time at our website, 4hcm.org. So you can go directly to the center. You don't have to do the intake and navigation, but to prepare, we recommend it. And sometimes based on anatomy, physiology, and family, the closest center isn't the right center. And sometimes it requires planes, trains, and automobiles to get to the right person. So last year, we started a new thing. It's named for my sister, Lori, and it's the Lori Fund. And we provide micro travel grants to patients seeking HCMA recognized center of excellence care. Wow. So if I need to go to Texas, because that's the center that's really kind of where I need to be, and I can't afford it, you'll let me know that there's a travel grant potentially available to me. Correct. And it doesn't even have to be for a plane ticket. It can be for gas money, hotel room, food on the road. We don't want any barriers to care because that does not create a safe patient. Lisa, this is really amazing stuff. You're a founder and CEO. If any of my listeners out there are thinking, 
you know, there's a disease or an issue or a profession that they think is not represented at all with a nonprofit that caters to them. And they're thinking, boy, I think I want to be a founder myself. You've got some interesting advice for someone in that situation. Please share it with us. Be careful what you wish for. I would first suggest look to see who's doing work in the space. It may not be an organization you're familiar with. You may not know the people. But if there's somebody in this space, go see what they're doing. Talk to them and say, hey, I might want to get more involved. Because rather than starting from square one and building the foundation and building a board and getting your bylaws and doing the administrative bleh that is in the early days, you might be able to just jump on to somebody else's organization and run a project for them. Like, look, I want to do this. I'll go get the funding. Let me do it under your umbrella because you already have all this. I think it really speaks a volume to say to somebody, I don't have to be the one to run it. Hmm. I just want to solve the problem. And I have had so many wonderful, beautiful partnerships where I accomplished things organizationally that we wouldn't have been able to do alone because we partnered either with a professional organization or with another patient advocacy organization. And I've had people come to me saying, I'd really like to work on this particular issue. Come do committee work. You can do it on the committee. So I would look to see where you could work that's already structured and lean into their strengths and think about that before you say, I'm going to do this. It's a lot. It will take your whole life over. If you're going to be a founder, it's another child. Absolutely. So what are you doing to take care of yourself to make sure that you can continue to run this organization into the future because you're helping so many people? I don't think retirement is in my blood, even if I... Founders don't retire, Lisa. I know. Just get over it. It's not going to happen. Try to explain this to my husband. I'm like, (laughs) I'm going to keep working. I don't know what you're going to do, but... Yeah. I'm not going anywhere for a really long time. I think taking care of ourselves is critical. I think recognizing the mental stress and the physical stress. My birthday's in a couple of days, and I did a birthday fundraiser for the organization. And I'm like... I need to get a standing desk. So any donations that come in for my birthday, understand I'm going to use them for this. I'm going to get a nice new desk and I'm going to get it so I can do the treadmill thing and I can walk and keep myself healthy. I would never do that with budget money, like regular money. So I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing with it, guys. And so far they've come in nicely and I'll be able to do that hopefully next month. The other thing that I don't practice as well as I preach, time management is everything. I've created a couple of new processes for myself. Each day of the week is only for certain types of work so that I don't have to constantly go from, you know, the payroll business part of my mind to what we're doing with a sponsor or a new project or an existing project. They're all siloed in time blocks. So I highly recommend really getting control of your calendar and not doing too many diverse things on a day so that you can kind of stay in that space and that energy and and work it. But when you have to keep pivoting from one thing to another, you lose your focus. Take care of yourself. I've been talking about the wonderful benefits of therapy to my clients, but I hadn't been going. So I re-upped with a, a new therapist to help me make sure that I'm staying well. Wow, Lisa, very, very great to hear that you're taking care of yourself because you're taking care of so many other people. Thank you for everything that you're doing for the patients and the doctors, and I hope you'll come back and share with us the continuing story of HCMA. 
I would love to keep the conversation going. I really appreciate it. And I hope that other people who are in this space take care of themselves, take care of their communities, think partnership, and think big, audacious, really big projects. And if you fall halfway, you still did amazing things. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye. Bye.